We talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edmund Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? I'm still alive, um, which I wasn't sure whether I would be uh, touch and go at the beginning of this uh, week just gone um, because I Mm. had my first alcoholic drink uh, for the first time about three, I think it was like three months to the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I decided to drink three months worth of uh, Pinot Grigio in one sitting which is is foolish and I do not recommend mm-hmm. and I've learned my lesson and uh, I'm never drinking again until next weekend but other than that Ed I've recovered how are you I'm I'm doing well I decided this week to revisit an album that I have not listened to in its entirety since I was probably about 17 i would say because i listened to it once and said i don't like this i don't know why anyone would like this um which was pink floyd's the wall ah Uh, ah my finger guns are ready ed (laughs) um because of dan holson's video about the nostalgia critic uh review infamous review of pink floyd's the wall the movie which i still haven't seen but i think i will because that video made me think oh this actually seems like it'd be really interesting um but um, that made me think, yeah, I should probably re-listen to that album because that was definitely an album that I remember buying when I was first like really getting into music and everything. Yeah, when you first get into something, it's like, okay, I probably need to read all the one. Uh, I need to listen to all the albums that everyone say are the best ones. I need to read all the best books, all et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember listening to that one, thinking, well, it's no Dark Side of the Moon, is it? And not really. I basically, I just didn't get it. Like, I didn't understand. The story it was trying to tell, I didn't understand kind of like the ideas it was telling. I kind of walked away being like, yeah, it's got a few good songs, but, you know, not really much to 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 think about. Um, and then watching the Dan Olsen video where he, you know, lays out what the story of the wall actually is and the themes it's exploring. I listened to it like, again on a, a long car journey because it's the perfect length for like an hour and 20 minute drive. And I think knowing what the story was about and also just, you know, driving whilst listening to music is like a good way to just focus on the music because you know you can't really focus on anything else um i was able to appreciate the lyrics a lot more and whilst i still don't like like it it's not an album i think i would revisit like terribly often i did walk away thinking oh yeah this is like a really great achievement like a real personal work of you know roger waters trying to deal with a lot of extremely dark shit from his life and uh trying to kind of come to terms with you know britain itself at the oh, as it yeah. stood at the end of the 70s and yeah so like i was i was really glad um that i was i, I took the time to sit down and listen to all of it even though i still kind of like walked away thinking like yeah there's not a huge number of these songs you would want to listen to in isolation but also thinking that's that's not really the point of them <laughs> mm, that's the thing that's the thing about about that art and that is the beauty of criticism done good faith which i think you and i are probably going to talk about in depth another time because surprise surprise i have a lot to say about it mm, yeah that's definitely something we will probably explore in an episode either i mean next week or in a, in a few weeks but uh before we kind of get into the 
main topic for this week, which is just going to be a roundup of news, because uh, there's been a lot of news over the last like, week and a half or so. And also, uh, a look behind the scenes, we recorded a whole episode last week, which uh, we lost due to technical uh, It was me! It was <laughs> me! I'm sorry, I fucked it! You, uh, you were recording a cupboard somewhere, I think, based on... <laughs> I think Probably. I was. It was just, it was just ghouls. Ghouls, yeah, uh, gremlins, gremlins <laughs> in the work. But yeah, we were, we yeah, we we lost the episode last week, so uh, we're going to kind of cover all the news we talked about then because it was a fairly packed episode. And then the topic that we did last week, we'll also do again in the future because I think it's it's better to kind of leave a little bit of time between recordings on topics so that you have a bit of time to kind of let it percolate and you know kind of let the. Uh, the spirit desk LEA really take hold <laughs> and kind of so you think oh I should have made that point I should have made that point and then you have the chance to so this whole episode is just going to be news but first off this is going to be the uh last episode that we record before next week's Oscars so I thought now would be a good time for us to kind of talk about what we think is going to win what we think should win uh and just kind of like offer up some kind of like quick predictions so Emily based on the uh oscar nominations as they kind of like stand who are some of the people that you would like to see uh win next week at the uh i don't know with the, the train station <laughs> where they're holding the awards the tunnel over the river <laughs> um i mean the millennial shit poster in me wants borat to somehow sweep the board mm-hmm. even in the categories mm-hmm. that they've not been nominated in yeah yeah. Something that I've also noticed is that I've found it really difficult to have the capacity to really want to watch a lot of these films. Mm-hmm. And I've had I've had conversations with fellow film fans who seem to be feeling the same and I think it's the fallacy of everything's just easier online. Well no, it's not because there's so many different uh streaming platforms and services mm-hmm. it's like oh wait where, where was so nomadland isn't on prime but sound of metal is and mm-hmm. minari is a tenor to rent on prime which i'm sorry but absolutely fuck off i really want to see it but i'm not paying 10 pounds for a rental like i know mm-hmm. when I, I will pay 10 pounds to see it in a cinema because i go somewhere that's not my flat <laughs> um so instead of just being like cinema go to the cinema and stay in the same cinema and probably get like oh the days where i'd be in the cinema and watch three films in a row oh ed mm. i loved it and like getting quite sort of nerdy and making all the calculations beforehand being like well if i go for this showing then this showing in this order oh i mean maybe i shouldn't be allowed to but i want to um <laughs> so in terms of what i have seen that's been nominated borat <laughs> which i still i feel like we've all won just because it's been nominated I saw Sound of Metal this week and I thought it was transcendent. Mm-hmm. I absolutely loved it. Riz Ahmed is something else, but it's Paul Racy. Like, even if... Yeah. I feel like if he doesn't get Best Supporting Actor, <laughs> genuinely what justice is there in the world and the, the Academy can uh, can go do one, can do several. I, I guess because I Sound of Metal renewed my faith in modern filmmaking in a way that not a lot has of late. I think it just had this really beautiful story that is so far and away different from 
your average Oscar bait abled actor playing someone with a disability. And it does seem to have been received quite well in hard of hearing audiences. Yeah. I think an appreciation and, and the sort of communities that the film shows and the different the different positions. And it's a really strong contender, not even just in terms of awards noms, but for being such a fresh and sorely needed perspective. Mm-hmm. Um so obviously I'd love everything for that, but my gut is telling me probably not. And then, you know what, Ed, I'm not sure I've seen any of the others. And I'm I'm on it, I swear. It's just, it would be lovely to get like an Oscars package. Like everyone else, everyone else in the Academy got screeners. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. why can't we? I would, I would absolutely rent a bundle, you know, if it were like... Yeah and what uh is it about five is it five or six films in the running for best film or, or something like but basically it's just eight this year it's eight, eight it is year. eight um but really like i would i would do that like if because it would consolidate and help that access in terms of like online screening mm. that you know anywho so oh i just i mean sort of part of the part of what we were sort of talking about um before the before the gremlins ate my file um <laughs> was about chloe Zhao and nomadland and that now at the time of recording um she has won a bafta and is it a director's guild? yeah she won the what i guess would be considered like the big prize at the director's guild of america a few weeks ago and I have yet to watch Nomadland, but I had the pleasure of getting your full take on it after seeing it. And all of your reservations to me <laughs> sound incredibly valid and ones that I would have once I finally get around to watching it in terms of how <laughs> how working for Amazon in in their warehouses is probably not as rosy as it's making out and that trying to say like oh it's this sort of charming lifestyles maybe not you know or, or that like she's sort of finding some kind of freedom but you know maybe Frances McDormand will just star in a film that seems to be progressive and then is actually problematic for every year and will get nominated and that's just a fun bit we're doing now um mm-hmm. okay um and again the kind of I, I find it quite difficult to celebrate too deeply that there are two women in the running for best director because they are mm. both incredibly rich. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, oh, and a lot of uh, people who I really respect, their reviews of promising young women have been less than promising. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. your, uh, your review of Nomadland has got me primed in every sense of the word when I finally watch it. Maybe that's why it's not on Amazon. That's only just occurred to me. <laughs> mm. Oh yeah, I wonder why. Um, so, uh, as soon as you scratch the surface. But yeah, I'd, I'd really love to see Minari. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I honestly can't tell, Ed, but I think that's quite exciting that there is a sort of, there's no clear front runner. I don't think yeah. other other than kind of like the scoop of awards that are kind of coming to this point. And the thing that makes me really sad is that 
no awards can really be seen in their own context. They're always kind of like stepping stones on the way to the um, Academy Awards. Um, yeah. Which uh, is kind of a shame, but I don't know how that's really going to change unless, you know, the Oscars <laughs> ends up uh, scheduling itself two weeks early <laughs> by this on accident. Yeah, if the Oscars decided we're going first, like the uh, all the various states in America, they're always trying to compete to be the first one in the primaries. It's just kind of like, you know, the BAFTAs of the Iowa caucuses. Like, <laughs> no, it's Nevada's <laughs> turn now. <laughs> oh, I just got in my head now. I was like, is that how you say that name of that state? Everyone's going to be mad at me. The ne- <laughs> ne- 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 Nevadans. Um, <laughs> Nevidians. <laughs> Uh, no, no, they were the ones who died at uh, Waco. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Much like you, I'm not like massively keen on a lot of them. The two that I like the most of the movies that I've seen uh, that are nominated for Best Picture are um, The Sound of Metal, which I, I was very, very impressed with. I thought it did a fantastic job of using, appropriately enough, sound and sound design to kind of like um, put you in the headspace of Riz Ahmed's character and to really emphasize his sense of dislocation and alienation when he loses his hearing and you know he goes to a community you know that tries to help deaf people um and he you know until he learns sign language you know much of the movie is him trying to follow along with stuff that's happening around him but not having any understanding and also we don't have any understanding so there's no subtitles until he learns sign language which i thought was um yeah a great choice in terms of you know getting you in the space of thinking what would it be like if you suddenly lost your hearing and you have to try and figure out how to navigate the world um, so I thought that that was really great. I think Paul Racy, you know, if he wins, that would be absolutely fantastic. It's a strong category this year, Best Supporting Actor, um, for somewhat strange reasons in the case of, like, Lakeith Sandfield, as we've discussed uh, previously, uh, being in that category. But um, I think it would be really nice if Paul Racy won because there is something just so nice about the fact that he is, like, a jobbing character actor mm. who's just been around for ages, showing up in things, and he's never had, like, this sort of a big showcasey role but because uh, he is the child of deaf parents you know he obviously yeah. has such a wealth of experience that he could draw on for that performance I think it really comes through in what he does there and the other one that I was really impressed by was The Father which I think does similar things to The Sound of Metal in terms of putting you in the the headspace of the main character though in that case it's, it's Anthony Hopkins is a man who's kind of in a deteriorating mental state you know as his, his dementia kind of gets worse and worse and the movie does like incredibly clever things with perspective and having you know two actresses uh olivia coleman and olivia williams playing his daughter and having different relationships with him depending on who's playing him and all this sort of stuff which i think is really fascinating and also just for me is great because i remember in the early 2000s i would get those actors actresses mixed up all the time so i kind of felt a real uh, kinship with anthony hopkins's character uh, in those moments but for the most part like a lot of them just haven't really made much of an impact i mean minari's lovely but again, like there's just not not quite that same sort of passion for it for me for that film overall. Even though I think certain individual elements, like the the actress who plays the mother, I think is the grandmother, sorry, who I think is is fantastic, and it would be really nice if she won. Uh, but yeah, really, the only cat, the only nomination I feel particularly strongly about is uh, Maria Bakalova for for Borat. Just oh. I think 
that's such a wonderful thing that happened <laughs> that, that she got nominated and whether or not she wins is kind of immaterial like the nomination is the win as far as that's concerned but like if she won I just think that would be so so good because she is so good in that movie and she's so funny and so genuinely touching <laughs> it'd be amazing if she won but yeah for the most part these Oscars just don't feel entirely real to me in the way that they usually do like so much of it has been from home and so little of those movies have like the I don't know the ceremony of actually going to the cinema and seeing those movies and having to sit with your thoughts about them in a cinema while you're watching them like watching them all at home doesn't have quite the same impact Mm. but yeah so yeah so I guess those are my thoughts (laughs) there's a bunch of movies that are good but like I don't really feel that strongly about any of them uh, if uh, Maria Bakalova and Paul Racy win, then that'll be a good night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is the official uh, SRS position on the matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we'll go on to the news for this week. And uh, there were quite a few big news stories over the last sort of week and a half. I think we'll start with the story that Netflix and Sony have signed a deal so that Sony's theatrical releases will stream exclusively on Netflix after you know the the window of time that they're at they uh, have exclusivity in theatres which I think is around three months at this point or at least that's how long it used to be maybe it's it's shorter now but um, that means that they have kind of sewn up the rights to like all of the Spider-Man movies and also they will have the streaming rights to Sony's back catalogue, which I think is, is pretty extensive because over the years they've purchased the back catalogues of lots of different uh, smaller studios that don't exist anymore, only exist as Sony imprints at this stage. So it's quite interesting in terms of Netflix you know, trying to bolster themselves a little bit in the, uh, the, the continuing streaming wars and to try and get you know certain other major studios on board in kind of signing up with them uh, and also in terms of some recent moves that Sony have made when it comes to their uh, the video game side because you know they recently announced that their video on demand service that they do on PlayStation is going to be shuttered because presumably not that many people used it to rent movies uh, which certainly is true in my case I think I've I've had a you know PlayStation 4 for three or three years at this point i think i rented one movie from it so i think a lot of the people probably had the same experience as me and you know uh, maybe them looking at it thinking ah it's really not worth becoming you know one of the small fish in this pond when you know netflix and amazon and disney are taking up so much of the space yeah i mean i guess this is kind of the first big first big deal of possibly what will essentially be the hybrid model going <clears> forward and this feels like the first kind of land <laughs> or not digital real estate being claimed and I mean I get it but I wonder why Sony have gone with Netflix because I feel <clears> of all of the streaming services the bubble within which Netflix has created for itself is about to burst Mm-hmm. because I don't really see what other kind of recourse or um, contingency it has because the thing about Prime is that it, it is already it, it operates at a loss mm-hmm. but which is insane <laughs> but I don't know whether you've heard but Amazon are doing alright for themselves um, yeah just, just a tad they've got uh, 
465 million to spend on <laughs> the Lord of the Rings. Fuck, sorry, I just um, looked through space and time there. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, I guess this is a big boost for Netflix and possibly a cash injection, but I'm surprised that, and I guess it's also like in terms of parent companies and things, Netflix, as far as I'm aware, is probably the only one that Sony could do a deal with, you know, other than like mm-hmm. a competitor or something that it already owns. Yeah, we'll we'll see i guess i mean ed pardon me for asking but a dvd is going to be a thing anymore <laughs> or is it all just are we all just the i can't remember the last time i bought a dvd to be perfectly honest with you like a blu-ray are we just is that are, are we, is it off have we shut it down uh i think that blu-rays are probably going to still be around but it's probably we're probably don't know five years out from a point where like most major movies won't get them Mm. or if they do it'll be like super bare bones and you won't get like a lot of energy put into them um although having said that like you know there's been a big push for people to sign up for like 4k blue blu-rays and stuff now like that now and sony obviously they own the blu-ray um copyright and they produce them so obviously they have a vested interest in keeping it going and i think they probably have a big hand in 4k as well so maybe that's too pessimistic on my part um but Certainly, I think the market for Blu-rays has shrunk massively uh, post yeah, all physical media, like post-2008, post the Great Recession, that like took a huge chunk out of the physical media market and it's never really recovered. But I think there will still be a pretty big market for boutique Blu-rays. Obviously, Criterion do very well. And I think we've in the past, we've kind of like talked about how they take on they have taken on kind of increased importance in that field as like the pond around them has got smaller like they haven't necessarily become a bigger fish (laughs) it's just that all the water's drying up and other companies like shout factory you know continue to do really well and and arrow and all these other ones i think they'll they'll continue and they'll do well enough and they'll strike deals with studios for boutique titles and things like that so it'll keep going hanging around but it may get to the point where it becomes like like vinyl like you know vinyl now is something for people who are like super serious about music and there's enough people that that is still a viable format that you'll be able to buy in most places because um you know there's been a big increase in the number of people who are interested in having the physical copies of music but it's maybe not going to have the primacy that it had sort of 10 15 years ago when you know if you were in any university kind of like hall of residence room or whatever there would just be a pile of dvds that just everyone seemed to have uh it would now be more case of like people just streaming stuff off of their laptops it may even be that case now i I have to confess i haven't been in many university hall of residences (laughs) in in recent times there's not been a, a call for that um our next story uh, is that uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge has been cast in Indiana Jones 5, which uh, is still happening, apparently. And uh, I thought this was interesting because it's kind of the third movie in fairly short succession that she's been cast in, where the reason for her being cast seems to be to lend it some sort of 
cred and it's interesting that that seems to be the role that she has because obviously she was cast in Solo, a Star Wars story, uh, which came out in 2018. And then she has been or she has done a rewrite on the screenplay for No Time to Die, which uh, obviously is in a state of limbo where it's, it's not come out just yet, but it's still always on the verge of coming out. And now she's been cast in this. I, I kind of find it very interesting how that has become something of her niche for a uh, post Fleabag uh, and post Killing Eve is that you know she is someone who studios look to and say okay if we put this in if we put her in these movies then it will generate a lot of headlines and it will gain us a lot of cred because she's very cool right now and that's not necessarily something I would have expected to have happened you know when when Fleabag first came out yeah I'm trying to remember what the first kind of notch in the uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge takes over the world step was because now it just seems sort of you know quite ubiquitous and <clears throat> again there's a connection because to to the oscar noms because emerald fennel was the showrunner on a pretty drab series of uh, of killing eve because i think <clears throat> waller bridge was too busy because she's just really busy and everyone's got her on everything yeah something i have to say Ed, just to get off my chest, is that every time I hear her name, I sing it like this. BB Walla Walla Bridge. Like, tell me more in Greece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and now I've done that, I can be at peace. Um, <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for that. It's a real shame because it's not to say that Phoebe Waller Bridge isn't talented and I don't want to uh, rehash too much of the, um, you know, the discourse. Um, because I think we're all perfectly aware of it but it's just that kind of you know if you make anything that's of any artistic merit however problematic your background actually is you're just gonna end up working for Disney and mm-hmm. like Indiana Jones 5 but the was i did i just hallucinate the crystal skulls and Kate Blanchett as a Nazi is that just me well, she was a Russian. Oh, a Russian, sorry. The other... They were fighting the Soviets there. The other historical baddie. Mm. My bad. And they'll have to find someone else to play um, Indy's son, of course, which I approve of. Michael Cera mm. did a very nice job in Twin Peaks. You know, I think they wore the same hat. Um, <laughs> and obviously hats are a big thing in Indy. But really, I think it's just such a shame that, you know, it is the the marketing and there's not that sense of a tar you know looking forward to the next target just hitting the same target over and over again mm-hmm. um and there's something really sad about the idea of cool so are you sort of bringing on phoebe waller bridge to be progressive you're kind of playing yourself there because she's already become you know she is talented and in a similar way to like hearing like, oh, the Cohen brothers kind of punched up Bridge of Spies. Do you know what I mean? You you can immediately get a sense of an authored voice and a vision. And there is nothing wrong with that. But I just I'd much rather the studios invest more in the next Phoebe Waller Bridge than just milk the poor woman <laughs> dry. Mm. Because I her sort of schedule must be pretty punishing. And you know what? You <laughs> There are other <laughs> other writers are available. Mm, yeah, absolutely, and and also you know, there there is just that kind of like you say, like you just think 
why aren't you just kind of giving her a bunch of money and resources to go and make, you know, whatever the next thing she wants to do is after Fleabag. Mm. Like, as opposed to just being like, oh yeah, she can be a robot in (laughs) Star War. Like, that'll be a fun thing for her to do. Like, it doesn't seem like the best use of her her time as someone who does, you know, seem like incredibly talented. Uh, On a a related note, obviously Steven Spielberg isn't directing uh, Indiana Jones 5, uh, James Mangold is, but uh, the reason why he's not directing it is he kind of put it off in order to go and make a a small personal movie um, about his childhood in Arizona. And one of the kind of big pieces of news recently was that Paul Dano is going to be playing uh, Spielberg's dad, which is, or, you know, the fictional equivalent of his dad in the movie that they're making, which is interesting uh, twofold ways because... You know, this is a small personal movie from Spielberg, who's someone who, despite being, you know, one of the most influential filmmakers of the last 50 years and someone who I think you could probably glean a lot of his personality from his works, the kind of movies he makes and the kind of stories that he likes to tell. He's not someone who is kind of like prone to like making like small, directly personal work. It's more like you have to infer things from his other work. And so it's interesting that he's 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 writing and directing a movie that is so much about his life but also because Paul Dano himself is also not someone who works often these days um you know he has been writing and directing more with the uh movie he made a few years ago Wildlife I think with I think that's what it was called with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Carrie Mulligan yes um and then um you know he hasn't acted in anything since Escape at Denimora, the uh, miniseries he did with Ben Stiller. And then in terms of movies, I think the last movie he was in was, in, was Oxja, a Bong Joon-ho movie. So, like, it is, you know, he's not quite reached his uh, former castmate Daniel Day-Lewis's level of being cast in a movie as being kind of like a big event because he doesn't act that often. But it's definitely been, you know, a while since he's done a movie and him being the lead of a Spielberg movie or, or you know, having a major world, having a major role in a Spielberg movie uh, is, you know, quite uh, significant. Yeah, and I think a lot of that might be to do with his status as a father. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. He has, um, I think, two children with Zoe Kazan, at least one, at least one offspring. And, you know, if you can take the time to be with them, that's nice. I think also, like, taking a shift to sort of move into directing, because I see him truly as the only living actor who has that real Philip Seymour Hoffman quality of being Mm -hmm. incredibly distinctive, but also somehow an everyman, which he had immediately, like, from Long Island Expressway onwards like just an absolute an absolute marvel and i also think like incredibly humble and doesn't really like to be in the spotlight too much which i think i i can see why spielberg thought of him for his dad because the documentary spielberg spielberg (laughs) um is uh has some interviews with his parents and they're absolutely adorable and his mum seems to be an absolute Mm. firecracker whereas his dad is kind of the steadier of the two and just absolutely adores her and they tell an anecdote of when she brought a monkey home because it needed rescuing and you know she said something about and then they sort of talk about something else and he just it's (laughs) there's just a beat and his father goes well I liked the monkey (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know I think that's a really 
nice way to be like you're not necessarily the one that brings the monkey home but you are happy that the monkey's home and I think it like you're saying like isn't because we don't actually know an awful lot about Spielberg personally through his art anyway like obviously very influenced by his experiences but nothing like acutely directly biographical and okay Ed I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say it and then we'll move past it and in that sense Spielberg is a bit like Shakespeare in the you know <laughs> mass popular culture really people really take take to the guy but his work we don't actually know an awful lot about him which is kind of remarkable given that he is one of the most famous people on the planet and yeah I'm I'm definitely intrigued and I'll just see anything with Paul Dano in it you know Mm, yeah absolutely our next story uh this is kind of related to what we were talking about i guess with the the phoebe waller bridge thing and, and talking about uh people you know kind of using their more personal projects as a kind of way to end up working at disney whether they intend to or not uh is the story about uh kristen wig and annie mamolo uh signing a deal with disney to work on a film about the cinderella's two stepsisters uh, this coming off of the release of their film Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, which they starred in and co-wrote and was like the first screenplay they'd had produced since Bridesmaids. And um, I, I don't know, it's hard to tell when movies go just straight onto on demand, whether or not it was like a massive hit or whatever. But, you know, it was a movie that people liked and that, you know, was uh, seemed to kind of get a lot of response on Twitter, at least. So clearly people saw it and liked it. And it's on one level, you think, oh, it's it's good that, you know, they get to make another movie because it seems like it was a bit of a problem, an effort for them to get this movie made after they had had such huge success, you know, Oscar nominated success with their first screenplay. But at the same time, you're kind of like, so you're going to make a movie about Cinderella's evil stepsisters. That just doesn't seem again, again, just doesn't seem like the best use of their time. Even if on one level, I'm like, I'm kind of happy that they're getting paid to go out and kind of like do work because, you know, it kind of feels like uh, Hollywood didn't serve them particularly well in the wake of their like huge blockbuster success with, uh, with bridesmaids. And I think this is the one kind of endless Disney backstory slash uh, offshoot that I'm a little bit excited about because it, it's an alignment. It makes sense. Like they're a mm-hmm. great double act. I haven't seen Barb and Star go to Del Mar yet, but I'm looking forward to it because it just looks really silly and fun. And I think yeah. Kristen Wiig is quite close to America's Julia Davis in that she can be mm-hmm. in very broad appeal comedy, like dramatic character stuff. And also the really grotesque sort of on the margins of human experience, which is, you know, where I like to dwell, culturally speaking. So this makes sense to me. Like I would watch that film anyway. It's a shame that it kind of has to be Disney but, I, but I'm immediately thinking like, oh, cool. Like, what if there is a kind of, they're able to bring Bridesmaids to a sort of teen audience? Like, to, like mm-hmm. to, to give teenage girls of this generation their mean girls? Because I think we're well overdue that. So I am, I am excited about it, but it's the only one that I think is justified. I think, I think it's just a really good match. Oh yeah, it's definitely a good match of of people and material, but you know, like 
I feel I feel like um, the lesson of the last couple of years, like anytime someone exciting gets applied to a Disney project, whether it be Disney Mainline or Marvel or Star Wars, um, like very rarely does the machinations of the Disney machine allow their personality to like shine through in like a major interesting way. Um, and it all just kind of comes out as mush and like perfectly fine entertaining mush, but mush nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I'm in the mood for some mush, but I think you're right. I would be much more excited if it were a kind of, to borrow from uh, another Dan Olsen video about editing and the snowman, non-infringing fairy tale that happens to have a couple of <laughs> ugly sisters and maybe being able to point some more fingers and be a bit more satirical because it ha- it, it sounds like a prime case for another woke Disney, like Lindsay Ellis talked about in her because i love all of her essays but particularly that one yeah just a lot of mush just just like i'd like to chew every now and again ed i really would (laughs) our next story hey this might be one that people can chew on uh (laughs) it was announced that park chan wook is directing a tv adaptation of uh viet tan wen's the Sympathizer, which uh, is he's making for A24. The Sympathizer is a novel which I believe won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago. Uh, the, the book is about a North Vietnamese mole who kind of like works in South Vietnam, you know, during the war, but then after the fall of it, you know, ends up living in Los Angeles and about the diaspora of the Vietnam- Vietnamese community. And, you know, it's got this great sort of thing about duality and occupying different identities at the same time and so it's a really great book and you know kind of like really beautifully written and full of like very interesting thorny subjects which i think park chanwook could do a really great job like drawing out over over the length of the tv series much as he did with john le carre's uh, the little drummer girl when he directed that for amc and uh, i don't think they've announced what network this will end up at i would assume amc because of Park Chan-wook's previous uh, relationship with them. But, um, you know, A24 have uh, got a pretty good uh, track record at this point of kind of like supporting directors and allowing them to do what they want with their, their projects. And this feels like a really good combination of source material and uh, director and medium. Yes, I'm excited too. Do I have much more to say on it? No, I'm just, I'm just stoked. Give me, give, give me, give me it so I can chew on it. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> uh, our final final uh, news story before we get into um, paying tribute to some people who passed away over the last couple of weeks is a fun one, a silly one, potentially a serious one. Uh, today there was a poll released of the Texas governor's race. Uh, Texas, like many states in the US, has a, a governor's election next year, and there has been speculation now going back at least three or four months that Matthew McConaughey may run in some capacity, either as a Democrat or as an independent against incumbent, uh, incumbent uh, Governor Ted Abbott. And uh, there was a poll released today that showed that if he were to run, he would win by about 13 points. And obviously, caveats, it's a very early poll. We're over a year out from any election. McConaughey hasn't announced that he's actually running for governor. He's just kind of idly mentioned it multiple times. So, you know, there's a potential that you could do it. And also, you know, there's a very great difference between asking someone in the hypothetical, would you vote for this person if they ran for governor and then them actually running for governor and people actually voting for them. But 
that's kind of a weird story. <laughs> that's kind of a weird thing to consider that Matthew McConaughey, who has not necessarily like had much in the way of kind of like a political life as an actor, um, would consider running in in Texas and you know the potential that he could genuinely win because it's a state that's changing quite a lot and shifting around it's it's kind of like political allegiances uh and uh uh Ted Abbott is not a particularly Greg Abbott sorry Greg not Ted Greg Abbott is not a particularly popular incumbent so like you know there's potential there it's just it's a very weird thing to to consider the the guy who likes to lean on posters could potentially be the uh the, the governor of the second most popular state in the union. Are you going to say it or am I, Ed? <laughs> Try not to. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> it, it, it's this sort of icky... It's fun until someone has to take office, right? I'm, mm, I'm not yeah. going to put it past him... I mean, you know, Woody Harrelson, his mate, will probably be like, can we legalise hemp now? That would be kind of fun. And I think Texas is such an interesting state because it has these pockets of radical progression um, and then obviously not. (laughs) And, you know, in terms of seceding, I... (laughs) You know, I I don't know... I didn't expect the reconnaissance to take this route, but I also feel mm-hmm. kind of stupid because it's, you know, indie film, rom-com, gritty politics. We all know. Why Why did I not think that it was coming for, uh, for our Matthew? He could play bongos. I just, it, he seems very principled, you know, in his own little kind of old-fashioned hippie way. And I don't know if he'll actually do it. Maybe he's... He either has to be idealistic enough to be naive or idealistic enough to turn it down. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine his campaign? I don't know. I Again, it's fun until someone takes office. <laughs> so, oh, how do you feel about it? I think it's a very interesting thing to consider because, like, I don't think people really know that much about what his politics are. Like, I, you yeah. know, he... he I get the sense that he's genuine, generally kind of left-leaning, but he's also, like, not necessarily someone who's given, like, any, like, wide-ranging discussions about his politics or his his beliefs that much. Like, it's more just you kind of infer things from the kind of movies he makes or the kind of things he says in interviews, but there's nothing, like, concrete where you could point to and say, these are the things that he believes. True, and... true, but big plus point, Ed, just <laughs> because it's important to note, he wasn't in the Imagine video. That is very true. That's a very that's yeah. uh, that really bolsters pretty much anyone's uh, political chances right. and certainly their uh, their sense of good judgment. Sorry um, to interrupt your flow. Please continue. <laughs> but I think that can be a benefit because I think there is an independent streak in a lot of Texans, and I think that they generally don't particularly care for the two political parties. So, like maybe. You know, someone who like him who has just like a ton of name recognition and could run, you know, with like a set of beliefs that are his and that maybe aren't totally uh, hegemonic with what the Democrats believe, and that could allow him to kind of have his own identity. I think that's the sort of thing that could really 
help, but at the same time, you know, it is still a state that has like you know a lot, lot of conservatives, uh, sort of place that has, has been the the white whale for Democrats for decades at this point. I think like you know, if only we can you know turn Texas blue, like things will be great. So I, I I do kind of look at it and think, you know what, he feels like the sort of person who could do it if he genuinely wanted to. And the question is just like if he generally wants to, and if he you know can build up the 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 sort of massive campaign that you would need to run a gubernatorial election in uh, in Texas, but it certainly doesn't seem totally wild to think that he could make it a very serious race if he decided to really go for it. So we will now go on to our. Uh, you know, list of some of the people who passed away since the last time that we recorded an episode, and we wanted to kind of pay tribute to. Uh, first up, we have uh, Anne Bates, who was a writer for Saturday Night Live in the early days, like the first season, uh, first few seasons even of Saturday Night Live. Kind of like someone who had a huge uh, influence on the tone and direction of that show. Someone who therefore has a huge influence on just American comedy in general. And who also, you know, in addition to that, created the NBC sitcom uh, Square Pegs and, you know, kind of had a lot of work outside of SNL, uh, obviously. But, you know, just through the fact that she was so central to SNL in its early years and defining what that show would become to be, that's such a seismic uh, impact on popular culture in uh, in america certainly and also you know, worldwide because of all the various people who become famous as a result of of being on snl um so yeah so like uh, someone who had a huge huge impact even though i think she was probably not that known outside of like comedy communities outside of people who knew a lot about american comedy or at the very least people who had sat down and read all of uh you know, that big Saturday Night Live oral history that came out a few years ago. Yeah, Life in New York, which I really mm. recommend because I think the two authors, editors, compilers, however you would say, the people whose names are on the front of a, an oral history, say the, the ones what wrote it down, I think they do a really amazing job of balancing everyone's opinions about each other with a really mm. beautiful sense of comic timing. <laughs> they managed to sort of elucidate how these are all funny people and not necessarily people who all got on but people who really cared about being funny and I was really really sad to hear about Anne Bates passing and there's the most incredible interview with her in Vulture which ended up being her final interview I think about a week before she died and it was a real kind of journalist plucky moment to just be like oh, I wonder how Anne Bates is doing, whether she'd be up for talking to me, and she was, and it's amazing. And the the things that she points out, including a re, you know, she it seems that she still watches SNL every night, <laughs> you know, every, uh, every every week. I mean, sorry, um, so she's still really up with it, and she could because she mentioned a sketch in the episode that Maya Rudolph hosted most recently, which was a kind of spin on The Shining, and there's a kind of Anne Batesy type character played by Tina Fey. And Anne Bates was saying, like, yeah, some of the lines were good, but also, like, why why are you trying... What are you saying about your elders? Like, if it weren't for us, you wouldn't even be there. So I like that she was still quite salty and wasn't up for kind of... Um, just wouldn't take any shit. Um, and mm. she also was portrayed to, I believe, perfection by Natasha Leon in a futile and stupid gesture. 
Um, yeah. And there's lots of lovely behind the scenes photos of them hanging out and clearly having a great time. And yeah, I, I guess if you're not really as into SNL as I am or um, open to the history of American comedy, ah, oh man, I mean, it's just, um, it's a real shame, but I think she leaves a particularly, a particularly sassy legacy. Mm. Uh, also passed away a few weeks ago was uh, Nikki Graham, who was a contestant on Big Brother in the UK. Uh, she was in a star in the seventh uh, series of that show. So sort of once it had got past the stage of being about, you know, of claiming to be kind of a social experiment and very much once it had reached the point where it was about clashing personalities. But she was someone who I remember watching that and being really taken with. She seemed very funny, very charming. She had uh, one moment that became instantly iconic, which was her sat in a, the diary room saying, who is she? Who is she? Um, which became just like a, an instant meme with me and my friends on various internet forums at the time, just sharing that image. Uh, and it's just, yeah, she, she was just like someone who, yeah, was obviously very compelling and someone who became uh, something of a star. You know, she got her own... Uh, kind of like follow-up reality series out of it um but who also as a result of that was kind of put into the public eye and seemed to struggle with fame quite a little bit and ultimately died of uh complications arising from anorexia so yeah it's very much someone who i think it would be fair to say was something of a victim of the kind of unending glare of reality tv and tabloid culture and, and all the all that comes along with it the thing is, for all the people who didn't know who Nikki Graham was, if they typed in Nikki Graham, who is she? <laughs> you're right there. You're home. Nikki, I, I I was really unsettled hearing of her death. Anorexia is the mental health diagnosis with the highest mortality rate. <clears throat> and that remains the case. And... I don't think people really understood how 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 much she was wanting to get better but how pervasive this issue was because you know there are reports of her being hospitalized at the age of 9 and I think she mm. was someone who was incredibly energetic and very sweet and and at the same time I agree with you and it seems to be kind of a lot to do with kind of her lack of feeling of security after I think some injuries she sustained within lockdown where she wasn't able to exercise and you know I only sort of mention the details because sometimes it can be quite um unhelpful to do that but I think it's just to show how delicate we all are and we all mm -hmm. have we all have our things I'm I'm in I'm very glad to say that I'm in recovery from an eating disorder and have been for a long time, but it is hell and I am never too far away from remembering exactly how insidious it is and how it seeps into absolutely every corner of your life because it becomes the foundation of your life. So um, my DMs are open to anyone who is um, suffering or doesn't know how to support someone that they love um, or you know they're concerned about a friend but I hope that what we do take away from Nikki in the public eye is how and uh, again like she was just the epitome of 
of someone who was really bright and sunny and that we're still not really seeing off the back of the majority of kind of, you know, reality TV deaths. Mm. And that, you know, oh, just a big sighed. I I ran out of steam there because I'm just <laughs> really sad on behalf of everyone. Yeah. Also uh, passed away just the other day was um, Helen McCrory, who is a well, veteran actress of, of stage and screen in the UK who had been in... Uh, I, I think I know her mainly from playing Cherie Blair in The Queen and mm. The Special Relationship, but also, um, you know, she was in the Harry Potter movies. She had a small role in Skyfall. She had a, a small but crucial role in Martin Scorsese's Hugo. Um, she, was, and she was on, she just did tons of stage work. I think that that's probably what she was most acclaimed for, although obviously, you know, she would also just show up in everything. She was in a great episode of Inside Number Nine, I remember as well, a particularly mm. upsetting one. And just a, kind of a great, screen presence every time she showed up you know she always did great work and she was always yeah she, she was just always great in everything i ever saw her in and it's like uh, she she died unfortunately of cancer at the age of 52 uh which is just like shockingly young for someone who had such talent and who was just always such a delight and who you know from the tributes that have come out about her uh since then from people who worked with her or knew her seemed to be just like a, a truly wonderful person to be around this one really hits a home i didn't realize i had ed because 52 is no age at all mm-hmm. for a start and yeah. i think it's really remarkable that pretty much like all of my group chats just like lit up as soon as the news came in mm. and i think i didn't realize how what a fundamental thread in the fabric she was because all of the stories that came out about her were not only she was a patron of this and she you know was a stalwart of like support in all of these different institutions she was also it seems by every single account incredibly kind and could notice someone who felt uncomfortable or out of place and was able to make them feel safe and secure which is just a real mark of a human being. And I, yeah, I, Sherry Blair is a big, <laughs> big one for me. I also remember her from Messiah. Again, like a particularly upsetting series, but she was mm-hmm. absolutely incredible. And if anyone has access to National Theatre at home, her Hester in the Deep Blue Sea is just so compelling. And I'm really sad I never got to see her live in theatre. I think I have this vague memory of her and Damien Lewis being in a TV, a BBC Shakespeare adaptation of Much Do About Nothing, which I'm going to try and dig out because they were clearly having like an absolute whale of a time <laughs> in those parts with each other. I think Billy Piper's in it as well. I might be wrong. But yeah, she was just, had this really like sensual presence. But it's something that Roger Ebert said of Brittany Murphy that it was it didn't come from sex appeal it came from life force mm-hmm. and i felt that and i i haven't brought myself to read damian lewis's full article about her because i don't think i'll be able to handle it but that mm-hmm. she was just an absolute force and i think that momentum will keep going in so many people for a really long time even though we won't ever have another performance from her which is just devastating Hmm. I saw a story being shared about her earlier on today that I thought was was just lovely, which was 
um, she met Lauren Bacall at some sort of big thing that you know some big Hollywood thing, and Lauren Bacall. Uh, said that she thought she was great in a stage show, a, a, a show that she'd seen, and um, she ref- was actually thinking of Emily Watson in the role. So, but but Helen McCrory was like, "Oh, I'm, I, you know, that's great." And then when uh, Lauren Bacall realised her mistake, she apologised, and Helen McCrory just said, "I'm glad you enjoyed the show." And uh, Lauren Bacall basically said, "Ah, you're the kind of dame I like." And they went out on the town. It's just kind of like. What a, what a wonderful little story from a life. Just like incredible, wonderful, charming little like Hollywood moment. And our final death uh, was the the passing of um, DMX, who passed away of a heart attack or as a result of a heart attack a few weeks ago. Um, he had been in hospital after suffering a heart attack for about a week, and there were various reports about uh, his his state over the course of that week, and, and it generally looked pretty pretty bleak from the reports that were coming out and obviously last week his his death was confirmed but even knowing having a few days to think yeah he's probably not going to turn around it was still shocking when he died because dmx you know as a performer such a force like you hear the, the energy on any of his songs whenever if you ever see any footage of him live he always seemed to be just like completely in the moment committed to it you know like something like x gone give it to you just goes so hard you know as a song Always does. You, yeah you just hear it you just kind of like wow it's, i feel like i am being screamed at <laughs> but i'm having a great time um and um as an actor he was also like just really fun in anything he showed up in i always think very kindly on his performance in one scene in the not particularly good chris rock movie take five where uh, Chris Rock's character ends up in jail and he shares a cell next to DMX and DMX starts singing um, Smile, the uh, song based on a piece of music by Charlie Chaplin, uh, which is just really funny because, uh, you know, hearing that rasp, that rasp trying to wrap around those very sweet, delicate work melodies is really funny. And just like, or again, like Helen McCrory, um, and you know, this is probably the only time anyone's compared those two people. <laughs> um, just the stories that came out afterwards were all of the like he was so great, and every 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 single person seemed to have a story about DMX, whether it was him like buying Girl Scout cookies from someone, and when the the, the child said, you know, oh, you know, I, I'm trying to win a competition, him buying five hundred dollars worth so that he, they could win. Or him showing up at a Waffle House and being like, hey, I'm going to make omelettes for everyone. Or cleaning up at an IHOP and, and all this talking about how, you know, you should never be... His belief that you should never be too big to actually kind of like do work and never lose contact with the everyday experiences of people. Uh, yeah, just everything about him made him seem like just like this wonderful person to be around. And then also like he made music that was just like so dark but so like fun and enjoyable to listen to as well like there's just a real full panoply of human experiences contained in in one man absolutely and i mean as if he hadn't given us enough by giving x to us or x Mm -hmm. giving it to yeah um the orchids meme is just so lovely Mm, yeah so uh r.i.p to, to all the people we've lost in the last couple of weeks uh, even though this year in general doesn't feel as bleak as last year it just kind of feels like a lot of really good people are dying oh yeah no I don't think anyone else died did they Ed? no 
So we'll end this episode, we end all our other episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? I have to recommend Anne Bates's, uh sitcom Square Pegs, a fair mm. few episodes of which are on YouTube. I did not realise, but it starred Sarah Jessica Parker. So it's like pre-Carrie Bradshaw, proto-Sex and the City. Uh, she just seems perfect for mildly neurotic, uh, hyper-observant women um, looking at their everyday lives. It's just really charming. You can see like lots of threads of influence that it's clearly had in other things. Like there's a lot of Sabrina kind of feeling to it. Um, and the theme tune is from The Waitresses and it absolutely slaps. So treat yourself to some episodes of Square Pegs. Cool. I am going to recommend an article in the New York Times called The Long Tale of Aphex Twins Avril 14th, mm. which is an article about the song Avril 14th, which is on his album Drugs. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce it because there's a lot of extra letters in there. Yes. I've always pronounced it Drugs, um, which is this beautiful short instrumental piece that's, you know, kind of like a highlight of that album. It's, it's a song that, you know, from the f- first time I heard it, I was like, oh, wow, this is like the most beautiful piece of music I've ever heard. And the article kind of talks about, um, basically, like it says, the long tale about how it's a, it's a, a song that you still, you know, if you go on YouTube and, sh- and type in Avril 14th cover, you'll see millions of covers of people playing it on different instruments and different arrangements. It's obviously had quite a life in uh, being sampled, most famously by Kanye West on the song Blame Game off uh, My du- Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Uh, and there's also a very fun little digression in there about the Lonely Island song I Ran, which uh, samples it. Uh, (laughs) And talking about how they did not clear that sample and SNL had to pay Aphex Twins record company (laughs) (laughs) $100,000. Which is also why, if anyone's ever wondered, why it's not on any of their albums, because it would be too expensive for them to license that sample. But it's just a really wonderful article about the song, what it why it kind of still resonates with with people and uh, how it is you know has this weird afterlife as a uh, gateway to you know Aphex Twins work when you consider it's put on playlists on like Spotify and Apple Music which is like you know mellow sounds or like stuff to do yoga to and then if you think about his other work it's quite funny to imagine people finding uh window liquor through through that connection um but yeah it's a really good article and it got me uh, singing the Adam Levine hook to Iran a lot over the last week, uh, <laughs> confirming my belief that he should only sing on comedy songs where he gives it unexpected pathos, because that's pretty much the only time I enjoy his voice. Yeah, so there'll be a link to that in the description if anyone wants to check it out. It's, it's a very good little article. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player Fans, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>